Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by clinician and researcher J.F. Escoulier. J.F. and I had a great conversation about the causes of knee pain in runners, as well as taking time to dive in to a lot of thoughts and beliefs that revolve around knee pain in the running community. We also had a great discussion around minimalist shoes, what minimalist shoes really are, and why they can actually help to decrease our knee pain. Whether you are a runner, a clinician, or a coach, I think you will find this information highly valuable. So let's tune in. JF, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Brianne, for having me on the show. You are quite welcome. I am excited to get you on here. I've stalked you a little bit on your website. I've listened to a couple different podcasts you were on. And I just love what you're doing for research in the running community. So I'm really excited to get you on here and uh, just kind of really dive into what your research has shown and what your experience as a clinician has shown as well. Sounds amazing. Really looking forward to it. Awesome. Let's just talk, go first, though. What's your background as far as have you been a runner all your life? How did you get into the whole running aspect of things and uh, just kind of your background as a clinician? Yeah, well, in terms of my personal life, uh, I've been a, I was a soccer player for years, so I wouldn't run unless I had a ball to run for. Um, and that was until I finished my physical therapy degree in 2009. And then I started working at a clinic and I was working evenings and weekends covering for sports teams. And I wouldn't be able to play soccer anymore. So I decided to start running. Um, and then I'm, I've been a runner for 10 years now. Uh, and the physio for 10 years now. And uh, I, I started right away, um, you know, wearing shoes that, that had less cushioning just because uh, I was I was used to it. I was a soccer player playing with, you know, cleats that have no cushioning, and I would find that uh, more comfortable. And I also started reading a bit of the research on that. So uh, that's kind of how I got involved in running. And then since then, I, I run uh, 10Ks, half marathons. I, I ran one marathon, uh, maybe more uh, to come at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been involved as a clinician for now 10 years. I'm working in a um, sports medicine uh, clinic. So uh, working with recreational and elite athletes of different sports, but mostly runners. Um, and I quite enjoy combining the clinical work with research and teaching. Awesome. So a lot of your research, when we're talking about the actual clinical side, pain side of things, involves knee issues. A lot of patellofemoral, so pain on the front of the knee, a lot of arthritis issues. Um, let's dive into that a little bit. Um, what is, I guess, as far as when it comes to running, um, like what is causing a lot of these injuries when we when we see so many in runners? That's a good question, and and I would say you know from a research perspective, we're not even sure exactly you know what's the what's the main cause of running injuries, but it seemed like uh, doing too much too soon is is the main one and um, I would say the, the level of, of evidence scientific evidence on it is growing slowly but it's still something that we need to identify better so what's too much what's too soon uh, but it seems to be a, a, one of the main factors and personally in the clinics from the, the people that I see uh, who are injured they they're always reporting or 
almost always reporting changing something prior to their injury. So they increase their volume too quickly. They added speed, uh, speed intervals or running with a club. Uh, they added hills. They changed something and they just went over their body's capacity to adapt to that change. And that would explain most running injuries. And why at the knee? Well, it seems like the knee is, is a joint that takes a lot of, of impact and loading when we run. Um, so I would say it's probably linked with that. Um, you know, whether uh, it, it would be linked with other factors, it's not really well known. But uh, right now, it seems like it's, it's an area of the body that's taking a lot of impact for sure. What's your suggestion around, and I know it's, it can be, you know, different person to person, but as a general, you hear different things from different, even clinicians, physicians, you know, friend, friends of runners, that sort of thing. Do we take full rest? Do we run through pain? Like what's your recommendations for a lot of these issues that pop up? Yeah, and, and like you said, Brianne, it's very individualized, right? So it's, it's hard to give a, um, just advice for everyone here on the podcast. But what I would say is, you know, if the injury is recent, if it just started within the past week, past couple of weeks, I would say just take a few days of rest. Like don't, don't search, uh, don't look for the magic pill trying to, to heal your body. Your body just is sending you a signal that you did something too much and just take a few days of rest. Uh, if you know, if you had pain, uh, let's say you had Achilles tendon pain since a few months uh, or even years, well, it's different. So when it's been an issue for, you know, uh, quite a long time, sometimes we'll say, well, you know, you can run through a little bit of pain during, and I like to use like specific markers in, in most of my patients. And, and very often I'll use, you know, if it's two out of 10, during your run, it's fine as long as you don't limp. Um, and then as, as long as this pain is back to pre-exercise level within an hour after you stop. And then the following morning when you get up, you have to have no stiffness or no increase in pain uh, versus the previous morning. And for um, our OA folks, well, I say no swelling as well. So I, I use these different guidelines, and, but it's very individual. Uh, so run through pain. Maybe if it's been there for a while, but if it's an acute or recent injury, just, just take a few days off. Cool. Let's dive into OA a little bit um, because you and I both hear all these conversations of running caused my cartilage to break down. Running is going to make my knees get worse, my joints get worse. My doctor told me not to run ever again. <laughs> like <laughs> We hear this all the time. Does running actually, running in itself, does that contribute to arthritis? Is it something that it's a death sentence for us? Like, what's your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, it's a big topic of debate right now. And, and I would say that I hear that all the time too, you know, whether it's my doctor or my, my PT or my other healthcare professional told me not to run because it's bad for my knees. Uh, I would say, first of all, running is not bad for your knees. Running is actually good. For your knees. Um, why? Because you're stimulating the structures in your knees and you can actually make them stronger. Um, and from the research that we have right now, it seems like, uh, for example, a study by Van Ginkel in, in 2009, 
2011, came out with a 10-week start-to-run program. And it was two groups. One, uh, one group was, uh, they were all sedentary individuals. And um, nine of them started a running program for 10 weeks. And they looked at the content in their cartilage before and after. So the glycosaminoglycans content, which is a, a molecule that um, gives an indication of, of strength of the cartilage. Uh, because it attracts water and it helps the cartilage resist more compression stress um, versus 10 controls who did not start a running program. And what they noticed is that there was, at the end of the program, there was a significant difference in uh, the content of the cartilage. So the cartilage of those who started a running program, only 10 weeks, was already starting to get stronger versus those who did not start a program. So is it bad for your knees? No, not at all. If it's, if it's a decent program, if you listen to your body, you don't do too much too soon, it's actually a good thing to run for your knees. Now, there's always a question of um, you know, optimal dosage. What's too much? What's not enough? Um, and there is a, a systematic review, so a study combining uh, a bunch of other studies. Um, overall, 125,000 people were included in that study by Alan Porn Jelly in, in 2017. And uh, what they looked at was the exposure to running during your life, whether you were a uh, recreational runner, a competitive runner, or a control, so someone who's not involved in running. And they looked at the rates of OA at the knee and at the hip in these people. And uh, quite interestingly, the, uh, the control subjects, so those who were not exposed to running, had a 10% uh, prevalence of, of hip and knee OA. Um, the competitive runners had 13%, and the recreational runners had 3.5%. So the recreational runners actually had three times less osteoarthritis than those who were not running, but the competitive runners had more OA than those who were not running. So there seems to be an appropriate dosage there and in their study to be competitive just so the listeners uh, understand it was running at the international level running for your country uh, or be carded so be sponsored and paid for running and, and earn money basically uh, for that so it's a very high level it's not someone who wants to qualify for boston you know it's uh, that would still count as recreational according to their definition that's really it's really interesting and it's kind of funny. It, it brings back, <laughs> I've been, I just actually finished a book and it, it kind of goes into a lot of different things in the, in society in general about like these whole levels of things, like take it to a certain level and we're fine. Go over that level. And that's when like all hell breaks loose in like everything in life. And, uh, this all this like totally remind me of the same thing. It's like we have this point, and once we get past that point, that's when we cause more damage. So it's really interesting um, that difference between the recreational and the competitive runner, as far as that there's, I mean, ten percent difference is a pretty drastic difference between. We're just mm -hmm. that mileage a little bit. It's a, yeah, it's a big difference. And looking at the numbers in the study, the number of people who were, um, you know accounted for in that study, it's 125,000 people. So it's a huge pool of people. And um, in statistics, there's something that we call a confidence interval, which means we're 95% sure that the, the real value in the population is included within a certain bracket. 
And for recreational runners, it was 3.4 to 3.6. So it's really tight um, confidence interval, meaning there seems to really be a protective effect of, of recreational running on OA. Now, we, there's limitations, obviously, in that study. So we don't know if there's a, a natural filter, per se, meaning, you know, those who kept running is because they were built uh, to run and then they had less OA in the end. Uh, or is it because of, of running that they had less OA? So there's obviously there are limitations. But um, based on the other studies, like I was saying, you can build your cartilage a bit stronger even after only 10 weeks. Uh, there's one study showing stronger and thicker cartilages in, in marathon runners versus uh, non-runners. So there seems to be an effect, just like, you know, you go to the gym, you train your muscles, and they get bigger and stronger. So cartilage and joints can have that training effect as well and get stronger when you stimulate them just the right amount, obviously. This is really fascinating for, like, you always hear about just you can wear down cartilage and break down cartilage or maintain it, but to know that you can actually rebuild it just by doing activity is, you know, pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, and, and it depends what, what components of the cartilage, right? So there are components in the cartilage that cannot uh, grow back if, if you injure it. But uh, for example, if you have an inferior cruciate ligament tear uh, with damage to your cartilage, then you already create uh, some damage that may not repair. But if you're actually stimulating the cartilage that hasn't had any, you know, any major trauma to it, yeah, absolutely, go ahead and, and load it because I think you're gonna uh, make it stronger. And if you want my opinion uh, as a clinician and uh, as, as a researcher, I think you're gonna maybe delay the onset of, of OA. If you have genetic factors for OA, I think uh, you know, you, you'll delay the, the onset of that or the progression of OA. So why do you think, being that the research shows this, why do you think so many other people, clinicians and runners alike, have this idea that running is bad for the knees and causes a lot of these issues? Yeah, um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for you, Brianne, on that one, but um, I would say uh, we actually did a study, uh, we conducted a survey about a year and a half ago now that was just in Canada, and we asked uh, runners, non-runners, uh, and people with osteoarthritis and without osteoarthritis, and then also healthcare professionals on we asked them, do you think running will lead to OA? Do you think running frequently will lead to OA? Do you think running long distances will lead to OA? Uh, do, you need, if you do you think if you have OA and you keep running, do you think you will need a total joint replacement surgery faster because you're going to wear down your cartilage? And what was interesting is that um, there was a lot of uncertainty in, in uh, the people that we surveyed, even in the healthcare professionals. Like overall, for questions like, do you think if you have OA, if you keep running, that you'll you know, just destroy your cartilage pretty much and need a total joint replacement surgery? We had 50% of people saying, I don't know. So people just don't necessarily know, and then they hear something somewhere and they assume that you know, there's impact it's just gonna, you know, it's gonna be bad for my knees and my cartilage. But you ask them if you go to the gym, if you do weightlifting, 
is it going to be good or bad? And they say it's going to be good because muscles can grow bigger. So we just need to educate people on, well, any tissues in the human body can adapt. They're not as fast as muscles, obviously, but they still have a potential for adaptation and we need to educate people. So we're uh, currently uh, starting a new study. It's kind of a follow-up on that one and, and I'll send it your way so your, uh, your listeners can, uh, can participate in that one. But it's, again, asking them what they think about the topic, but we also provide an educational module on uh, what's the scientific evidence about running in a way. Uh, so we're working on that right now. We're a group of, uh, of uh, people from different countries and uh, I'll let you know when, when it's ready. Awesome. That'd be great. You mentioned strength or the strength training side of things just briefly there. So curious on with runners and strength training, how much uh, do you feel injuries are related to lack of keeping the legs strong, lack of that strength training versus the ones who understand that we do need to do some strength training as runners. Mm -hmm. You have great questions. Uh, <laughs> is uh, again, my bias as a physical therapist is that, you know, you're stronger and then you will prevent injuries more. But uh, what the research is suggesting right now is that it may not even be the case. So you look at running injuries and there are quite a few prospective studies. So studies uh, assessing people, let's say today, and then we follow up with them for um, you know, a year looking at their training or six months, we look at their training and then we look at who's gonna get injured. And uh, those who get injured, were they actually weaker when we started the running program a year ago or six months ago? And these studies, some of them say, well, actually, yeah, people who were weaker, they got injured. And some others say, no, people who were stronger got more injured. So it seems like there's no, right now, there's no consensus on, you know, if you're stronger uh, with your, you know, your hip muscles, for example, or your quadriceps muscles, that you will, you will prevent injuries. There's no research right now that suggests uh, that if you do, let's say, a preconditioning program prior to starting a running program, that you will decrease injuries. There's nothing out there. My bias as a clinician is, yeah, sure, go ahead and do some strengthening because you'll be able to tolerate more. But what we don't know is, well, maybe actually people, because they feel stronger, maybe they run a bit faster and they, they kind of uh, cancel the effects of the strengthening because they'll sit, still get an injury from doing too much too soon. Their too much is probably higher than the person who's weaker, but they can still get there because they feel stronger. I don't know if, if that uh, makes sense to you, but it's kind of how I perceive it because there's no uh, preventive effect of strengthening on range injuries right now. Okay, that's interesting to see, you know, because I'm on the, you know, your view as far as the clinician side of things, but to see that that research isn't really showing it, it's really interesting. <laughs> And I'm also surprised every time I'm hoping, I guess it's my bias, but I'm hoping at some point a study will say, yeah, if you strengthen your, your quads and, and your hips, then you're going to prevent injuries, but it's just not the case. And it's probably because, you know, strength is not the main factor for injuries. Uh, 
the way we move, so the, the biomechanics is probably not the main factor for injuries. It all comes down to doing too much too soon. Too soon. And your too much too soon will vary depending on your strength, on how you run, on a lot of different things. But runners don't get injured if they don't change anything. It's rare. It's very, very rare. So they fully adapt to their training if it's done uh, gradually, even yeah. if they're weak as per our definition. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Let's dive into kind of your other side of research and what you've um, come to establish, which is minimalist footwear. So obviously it's a big, I guess, area of debate almost as far as that goes. But let's just kind of dive into what specifically is minimalist footwear and what you have created to um, almost give this or I shouldn't say almost, but give this range to these different shoes. Yeah, so uh, as, as you know, and as I'm sure your listeners uh, know as well, uh, it had been a great topic of debate because some research was saying, you know, uh, or some even books like Born to Run were saying, if you run with minimal shoes, you will prevent injuries and, and run injury-free for the rest of your life. <laughs> Uh, which is probably not the case based on what we just discussed anyways. Um, but what I'm saying is uh, basically we did not have any consensus on what a minimalist shoe was. So that was one of, of uh, the projects that we did at Laval University was to say, well, you know, we read a study saying minimalist shoes do this, and you read that other study saying, no, they don't, it's simply because they didn't use the same shoes. So if you use, let's say, a Vibram five-finger shoe, which is a very minimal shoe, it's just a glove for your foot. Uh, and you compare that to a Nike free shoe that's uh, thicker, that has a bit more of a drop, but it's still flexible and light. They're not the same shoe. So why are we expecting the effects to be the same? I don't think it, we should do that. So we created that scale uh, called the minimalist index. So what, what is a minimal shoe? It's a footwear uh, that, uh, basically interferes uh, not so much with the natural movement of the feet. And it has, um, so the consensus of experts from uh, 42 experts from 11 countries, we came up with a definition that said, we need to consider the weight of the shoe. We need to consider the stack height or how thick the heel is. Uh, the heel to toe drop, which is a difference in thickness between heel and uh, the toes. And we have also the technologies and the flexibility. And considering those five factors, we came up with a rating called the minimalist index. And then we can rate all different types of footwear on that index. And it's a percentage score. It's 0% minimalist means it's not minimalist at all. So that would be bigger shoes like some Hoka models or some uh, you know, Asics uh, Nimbus would rate about 10% as an example. And then you go to the other end of the spectrum, a 100% minimalist shoe would be the Vibram Five Fingers, for example. And some Nike Freeze that I was giving as example earlier, uh, some of them rate between 50 to 70%. So they're not at all the same as uh, a Vibram Five Fingers. And that, that's really helpful to orientate runners on what kind of effects are we expecting maybe uh, the shoe to have on the way they run or on the capacity of that shoe to help them strengthen their feet or how quickly should they expect a transition between a shoe that has more cushioning and a shoe that has, that's more minimalist. Awesome. I, I really love that. I, uh, 
I knew of the index before and I don't know. I know at CSM a couple years ago, I had heard about it and I didn't know you were attached to it until I listened to another podcast you were on recently, but I absolutely love it just because it is like, there is such a difference between all the different, you know, zero drops and minimalist shoes that it was almost, it's, it's definitely needed. And I guess it's frustrating that like more of, you know, not only shoe companies, but just shoe stores haven't really picked it, picked up on it because it could be so beneficial to shoe stores, you know, countrywide and worldwide in order to, um, you know, serve their customers better. Uh, no, I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, when we created that scale um, and we published it, and I mean, there's still a pretty good amount of experts around the world who contributed to that. So I think um, it, it should have been regarded as, you know, something that could be used, like you said, in, in running stores uh, or even by manufacturers. So my dream would be that on every shoe box, you have a minimalist index or that's written on it. Why? Because, you know, the customer or the, the salesperson is just looking at the, the shoe box and they say, oh, this shoe is, uh, you know, is a 40% on the minimalist index, but I'm used to a 20%. Well, that means I need more time to transition between the two. Instead, we're just talking about the drop and I'm so tired of the drop because it doesn't mean much. Right? The, the heel to toe drop doesn't influence the way you run that much. It's it doesn't have a lot of, of effects on uh, on much. Um, so I think we need to consider the uh, all the different factors together. And that's why we created that score. And, and some people say it's not a perfect score. I agree, it's not a perfect score, but at least it gives us a good indication. You know, when I show that to my patients in the clinic, they get it. They know that if they go, because they have knee pain, for example, and I say, well, I want to decrease impact your knees. So I'd like you to transition to footwear that's higher on the minimalist index. And let's say I send them to a 70% or 80% on the scale, and they're used to running with a 40%. Well, I know that it's going to take one month for every 10 to 20% change on the index. And that's based on uh, the different studies that, that have come out about you know, injury risk versus how big of a transition between different shoes. So uh, I tell them it's going to take you two months or four months. And then if you want a safe transition, keep that in mind. And they know if they get injured uh, during the transition, most of the time they say, well, okay, I know I, I, you know, I set up the transition and I did it too quickly. And that's why I got injured. So it's really helpful for patients to use that. How do you as a clinician looking at these injured runners make the determination of you know, what percentage would be a best, best fit for them? Yeah, uh, that's a great question because, you know, we look at um, the research right now and, and there has been a bit of research on the minimalist index, but uh, it's starting. We have other stuff on the go right now. Um, what I would say is uh, a, lot of, a lot of my recommendations come from uh, studies that are biomechanical studies or, uh, you know, looking at injury rates during transition. And, um, and what are the effects of different shoes on, on running mechanics? So basically, uh, I'll give you an example. Right now, um, we're doing research on the effects of different footwear in people with knee OA when they run and looking at knee, uh, 
knee impact, knee forces during running. We did the same in uh, patellofemoral pain or kneecap pain. And we found out that there was a, a direct correlation between the, the minimalist index and uh, the amount of, of loading they had in their kneecap or in their, their knee joint. So based on that, what I'm expecting is I want to bring them higher on the minimalist index. It's not for everybody, but you know, if it's, if it's pain that's been there for a year or you know, that kind of range, I will consider that for sure. If you have knee pain since two, uh, two weeks, I'm not changing your shoes, right? So if, if it's an injury that's been there for a while, yeah, I'll consider it. My goal is to go higher on the scale and whether I'm going to, you know, a 50% or a 70 or 80%, that's clinical reasoning, but it's also based on um, some research suggesting that from about 70% and more, there seems to be a greater reduction in, in knee loading. So if the goal is to reduce knee loading uh, with a lot of my patients, I'll go with 70% or 80%. I rarely go to 100%. Right? I, I don't remember the last time I said, uh, you know, you should buy Vibram Five Fingers, not to pick on any company here, but it's an example of a 100% shoe. If you want to try it, go ahead, but it's not necessary. The goal is not like in your exams, it's not to aim for 100%. It's, uh, it's really <laughs> to start decreasing the load and go higher on the index to reach that goal. But um, you shouldn't aim for 100%. What's the reasoning behind minimalist shoes and decreasing the forces on the knee? Is it because of how they're landing? Is it less cushiony? Like what's the theory behind that? Yeah, so there's a, a lot of studies suggesting that if you run barefoot or if you run with less cushioning, you will actually change the way you run and that will lead to less knee loading. And as an example, you will tend to have a higher step rate. So taking shorter steps because you want to protect yourself. If there's no cushioning under your foot, you will want to use your own body to change the way you run so that you decrease the impact. And uh, so you increase, you increase your step rate, you take shorter steps, uh, you don't jump as much on the spot, so you decrease that vertical uh, bouncing, and that means also less impact when you land. Um, a lot of people will change the way they land, so their feet uh, will not be as much into uh, heel strike. And heel striking is not a bad thing, right? But if you reduce the angle between your foot and the ground, well, then you reduce knee loading as well. So um, these are the effects that we see when you go to more minimal issues, and that explains uh, the reduction in knee loading. Not everyone will react the same, obviously, but um, a lot of people do, according to the research that we have, and uh, I see that in the clinic all the time. Awesome. So... Obviously, most running stores do not have these minimalist indexes in them. We know shoe companies, you know, shoe boxes don't. So where can someone, I guess, access this index? So if they want to go look into maybe I should be switching different shoes and not knowing what shoes to pick up, can they go find this somewhere? Absolutely, yes. And that's our, our mission at the running clinic is to be able to provide uh, educational resources for runners and healthcare professionals. So if you go on the running clinics website, um, there's a section of the website called uh, footwear and you can calculate the minimalist index. 
Uh, that's one way of doing it. If you want to know, maybe we have that shoe listed already and we're not selling shoes. We're a completely bias-free um, website. So there's no ads for any shoes on our website, but we list footwear and we rate them with the minimalist index. And we have several hundreds of models that are listed and I'll say even thousands of models right now. Um, and you can search for it. If it's not there, just click on the calculate uh, your own minimalist index. And what you need is simply the weight of the shoe. You can find that online easily. Uh, you need the, the heel uh, thickness. You can find that online easily. The drop, same thing. Uh, and then you just have to test the flexibility using your hands if you have the shoe with you uh, in your hands. And uh, same with the technology. So you, you can just click on calculate and you have the index right there. Awesome. That is awesome. And um, I'll have you send me that link so we can put it in the show notes so we make sure we get, get all that on there as well. I will for sure. Awesome. So let's just kind of bring this full circle. Someone who's listening has knee pain, not sure what to do about it, not sure if they should adjust their shoes, should change um, you know, how much they're running, that sort of thing. What's kind of some tips you can give them on just maybe a direction to start looking at to go? Yeah, um, again, always hard to uh, <laughs> give advice to everyone at the same time. I would recommend people that they, uh, that they go see um, an expert in running injuries if, if they want to get an assessment. But um, general guidelines for me would be if it's, if it's a recent injury, um, in that case, I would just take it a bit easier on the short term. So you reduce your training loads. So you reduce a bit your distance, your speed. And, um, and most of the time it'll, it'll just go away by itself. So you don't need to change your shoes. You don't need to change the way you run. Um, so training load management is a huge thing to manage running injuries. That's for sure. If you've had pain for years to your knees or if it keeps coming back, so, you know, it goes away and then comes back as soon as you, you start training for, uh, for a new event. Well, maybe in that case, it would be useful to combine different things. And what I do typically is combining um, a strength training program. Um, and that would be looking at how people run. And that, you know, oftentimes leads to taking shorter steps, increasing your step rate. Uh, that you can work, you know, you can work with the metronome to do that. Uh, run softer, so try to not make as much noise when you land. These are the main points for, for running mechanics and knee pain. And, uh, and looking at footwear as well. So footwear, uh, again, I tend to go to 70%, 80% on the minimalist index. Um, and I, I usually combine that with advice on running gait. So run softer, take shorter steps, and go with shoes that have... Um, 70 to 80% on the minimalist index. Awesome. Love it. When talking about um, load and volume, someone coming off of injury, um, you know, we hear all the times like, well, I was running 30 miles a week before. So like, I'm just going to go back to that. What's your suggestion typically for coming back from injury? How fast to ramp up? Uh, uh, depends depends on the injury, depends on the tissue, depends how long uh, that injury uh, stayed for. Um, so if you go to the extreme, if it's a stress fracture, 
uh, to your, your leg, whether it's your tibia or your foot. Um, in that case, I will tell people no pain at all when you start, for sure. And the mistake that a lot of people do is they stop for six weeks, and then the first time they go out for a run, they run for 30 minutes. And that's, that's a huge mistake, obviously. Uh, so the first time you go out for a run, I'll tell you, you run three times one minute run, alternating with one minute walk, and that's it. Right? So uh, to me, uh, the way I explain it to the patient, because they say, what, three minutes only? And I say, yes, because in one minute, you have about 80 to 90 repetitions of impact per leg. So if you run for three minutes, you have about 250 reps of impact per leg. And if you run 30 minutes, well, you'd have 2,500 impacts per leg. It's just like telling your patient, you know, I'll give you an exercise today. We'll start easy. Just start with 2,500 reps. Like, what would you tell me? And the patient, like the patient says, oh, okay, I'll do three minutes. Right? <laughs> so I, I start with three minutes and then I, I start adding minutes. And we have return to running programs on the Running Clinic's website as well that people can use. Uh, so that's the number one program is starting very easy. And after eight weeks, you're back to 30 minutes, uh, not right away after eight weeks. And you can go quicker if you feel fine. Um, if it's been, you know, if it's an injury that, that wasn't as severe, uh, you stop for a couple of weeks, three weeks, four weeks, then you can start with the program number two. It's back to 30 minutes in three weeks. Um, so it's also run walk, but it's just increasing faster. Um, and then we have the third program, which is uh, more for a higher level uh, after an off season, if you're an athlete, uh, then after two weeks, you're back to 60 minutes of running. So we have these different programs. I always personalize, obviously, but um, depending on how severe the injury was, I very often use these programs that I tweak a little bit. And then getting into the non-injured runner Maybe they're used to doing 5Ks, 10Ks, want to start training for a marathon, half marathon. What's the ramp up look like for that? So there's a, the good old 10% rule that I'm sure you've heard about, Brianne. But, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> what's the evidence about the 10% rule? Uh, not much. So there's uh, even studies that compared 10% with 20% weekly increase. There was no difference in injury rates. Um, and then there was another study comparing 10 to 20 to 30 percent, and then 30 percent seems to uh, yield more injuries. Okay. So it seems like you know being somewhere between a 10 to 20 percent is reasonable uh, in terms of, of mileage, but at the same time, uh, make sure that if you're increasing, you're increasing not four different things at a time, right? So you increase distance or mileage or you increase speed or you increase hills. But if you add all of that at the same time, you'll get injured for sure. So like how fast do you want to take to train for it? Well, it depends what's your baseline level and what's your objective. But typically for, let's say, a half marathon program, I like to use a 16-week program. Um, and for a full marathon program, usually it's more of a, 20, sometimes 24 week ramp up. And the key point is to not just increase, 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 is to have these cycles where you would increase for let's say three weeks in a row, and then you have one week after that's a resting week. You don't sit on your couch, but you reduce um, what you're doing. So you have these cycles of, of going up and a bit down and more up and a little bit down, and that helps your body to adapt and, uh, and get stronger 
as you as you progress. Awesome. And that's the suggestions I normally give. So I love that um, everything kind of coincides there. It's interesting as far as the, um, you know, that difference between that 10 or that 20 and 30% and which I can see that's a big, when we're talking mileage, that's a big difference in volume. For mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, it is a big difference. Uh, some people would say, well, if you're running, uh, let's say you're running 80 miles per week, 10% is also a lot. Right? Yeah. Because you'd be increasing by eight miles on that week and you reach a point where the 10%, like when you're running only 20 miles a week, 10% is not much. But when you're already flirting with the too much, then adding 10% can make a huge difference. So it really depends on what's your baseline level. So that's why there's no, there's no set rule on a percentage. Yeah. And I think it's a great, I, I love that you did point out, you know, not changing everything at once because so many programs we see and it's like they go from just running casual to adding tempo work, adding interval work, adding mileage, like all in the beginning week. And yeah, and then we do get injured and we have no clue why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm not against these programs because they keep bringing patients to my clinic. Uh, but, <laughs> but at the same time, I think... I think people need to be aware that, uh, you know, there's, there's the too much too soon and, and everything is individual. So if you just pick up a program online, it can be great for your neighbor, but maybe for you, it's a little bit too much. So listening to your body is, is, is the key point here. Even if it's written on a sheet of paper, it doesn't mean that you have to do the exact thing that's written on it. If you feel like it's being a little bit too much or your body is sending you signals that you should slow down. And I think that's a great point. It's a conversation I got into with someone recently is that we get these programs and we see them and it's like, okay, I need to follow it to the T, but we forget that we're still human and we may not feel great that day. We may have life stresses affecting things and that, yes, we have this program, but it's just a template. We still need to adjust based on what we're feeling like too. I think you're bringing in a great point here and, and, you know, people get injured because of an imbalance between load and capacity. And uh, what you're saying uh, is pretty much, you know, even if you didn't change anything in your training, let's say you've been running uh, 25 miles a week for 10 years and you've never been injured and you didn't change anything, but you just had a new baby and you're sleeping three hours a night instead of seven, like you used to, well, that load that you would usually tolerate really well now is becoming too much because your capacity to recover from that load is not there. So you can still get injured if your body is not able to recover from your training. So sleep, stress, like you were saying, these are very, very important things to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that I think as clinicians, we forget about too, because a lot of clinicians are so dialed into the physical aspect of the injury at hand that they don't dive into these other elements that could possibly be contributing. Yeah. And, and you're right. And sometimes I, you know, I like to make fun of my own profession sometimes, but <laughs> you know, if someone comes to see me and you know, they're injured, they're, they're a runner and they're injured. I don't care if they have flat feet, right? I care if they increase their training. 
So there are factors that as, as PTs and you know, as healthcare professionals that historically have been associated with injuries. And now more and more we say, well, actually it's not linked at all. Right? You have flat feet, it's genetic. You, you're totally adapted to these flat feet. You go to Africa, you go to Asia, you go to a lot of countries in the world. The norm is you have flat feet. So why would it be abnormal in, in America and in Canada or Europe to have flat feet. It's not, it's totally normal. So I don't blame these little picky things. Just look at a big picture, look at uh, their training program, and very, very often, most of the time, they will have done something too much too soon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, to kind of wrap it up now, uh, if someone wants to, obviously you mentioned the running clinic several times, if someone wants to get more information, reach out to you, has questions for you, how can they do that? Uh, so, yeah, we have the, a ton of different resources on the website. So if they want to have uh, training programs that have been built by a good combination of people, uh, we're the official providers of the Montreal Marathon uh, programs. Uh, so they can have access to that online, all the listing of the different shoes. It's all uh, on their website as well. Uh, if they're injured, they want to have quick information on different injuries. We have that as well. Um, so I would say our website is, uh, is a good uh, way to start. If they want to reach out to us, they can always send uh, an email, info at therunningclinic.com, uh, and we'll be happy to help out as much as we can. And uh, follow us as well on uh, social media, uh, The Running Clinic, or um, at Clinic Running is our uh, Twitter handle. Um, we're on Facebook as well and, and Instagram. So. You know, if people want to stay up to date on research on running, it's probably a good way to, to do it. Awesome. Well, JF, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing your amazing knowledge with all my listeners. Thank you very much, Brianne. My pleasure to be with you. And uh, that was a great conversation. Thanks for your great questions. <laughs> You're welcome. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.